And this is the word of the Lord. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. And we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know that he he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Lord, you have spoken now in the reading of the scriptures. We pray again that you would speak in the preaching of the scriptures. May we hear from heaven. Give encouragement to the weary and weak. Give conviction to the hard-hearted. Give life to the dead. And life abundant. Build us up in Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let you in on a pastoral secret. I don't talk about these all the time. Passages like this one are actually really hard to preach. Yeah, really? I mean, it's, it's squishy. Well, you know me, I'm not squishy, so okay, that's fair enough. That makes it hard for me. But no, it's, it's actually hard to preach passages that the congregation already does well. I mean, it's really easy to preach passages that people do very badly. I mean, it's, it's easy to stand up front and breathe fire. Oh, man, singe your hair. All the people up front have no eyebrows when we're done. <laughs> Those sermons are easy. Now, they're not fun, 
but they're easy. It's much harder, much more difficult to preach a passage like this one where you do it great. Because you have to figure out how to, to navigate that line to say, praise God, you do this well. Please do not get cocky about it. I'll let you in on another little pastoral secret. You know, I preach through books, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and there's a theological conviction for that, certainly. There is also an expediency issue. Uh, it takes about, for most preachers, a fair, I'd say an average, an hour to an hour and a half to pick a sermon passage. And I figured over 10 years, preaching one and a half times a, a week on average, that's a lot of time I didn't feel like wasting picking passages. I just go straight through. And it's fun because every once in a while it bites me. Preaching Dinah's unfortunate actions on Mother's Day, maybe not the best decision. <laughs> I hope you don't remember that because that wasn't actually a joke. That one actually happened. But it was on days like today, it's perfect. Because it's not a passage I would have probably picked, but it's a passage I should have picked. 1 John three eleven through 24 is not the place my mind would have run to last night. It ran to Psalm uh, 48, but it's the passage my mind should have run to. Because it's a passage dealing with the very nature of the body. Who are Christians supposed to be? And you remember in this book, John has been working through the contrast of nature. He's not simply been working through the contrast of behavior set. John is not a moralist or a legalist. He's not saying good people act this way, bad people act this way. He's been saying all along, you will behave according to your nature. And you can look at actions to help discern that nature. And we have kind of colloquialisms that express that same idea. It walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it is a duck. If they look like a Christian in these various fashions, odds are really high they are. Though only the Lord sees the heart. Here in chapter 3, he turns the corner and begins to look at the most perfect one, certainly for us today. The nature change that God works in his people, and this is the first kind of theme that we're going to see, first point. The nature change that God works in his people will, by definition, it will produce love for the saints. It's kind of an obvious point. Yes, I know. It's why preaching passages like this are so hard. Because you know them. You're doing it. You've got this. God changes the nature of his people. And when he radically transforms them, he he brings them from death into life. As we talked about in Sunday school, he, he brings them from the kingdom of Adam, marked with destruction and evil, into the kingdom of Christ. They given they're given a new nature, they're given a new person. And it's marked by the character of the God who has given it. 
God is love and he loves the saints and here now his people are loving and they will love the saints. 11, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. It's not a new command. It's not one invented here on the spot. It's not old, you know, Grandpa John having a little bit of a cantankerous day. It's, this is the story of God's people from creation. They are creatures that are part of their nature love one another. And he draws an illustration from the very beginning, that first division between people. I mean, I, I can't conceive of the heartache that this illustration would have entailed for Adam and Eve. And can you imagine that? For Adam and Eve? I mean, it's not like the whole world is out there. I mean, you're having kids, that is the world, and then they kill each other. I mean, my goodness, the burden that Eve had to have borne in her soul. Can you imagine that? The first one to eat the fruit, her kids killing each other. Man, that, that woman had to have been one tough lady. We shouldn't be like Cain. We shouldn't be like the one who is evil and murdered his brother. And he's here highlighting that with this nature change that God people's, God's people receive, it comes with it a, a relationship defined by either love or hate. That God's people, as they have God residing in them, as they have uh, this nature transformation, God is love and that it then becomes their nature. They are loving creatures and not just loving toward themselves, not just loving toward the Lord, but loving toward each other. But for those that don't have that new nature, that don't have that transformation, that regeneration, what leaks out through the edges is hate and murder. We shouldn't be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? That's a great question. Why did he murder him? I mean, you could say maybe it was his jealousy, his, his, his sacrifice wasn't accepted. And maybe it's because he wasn't a, you know, a shepherd and he thinks that you know, God likes sheep. Or what? No, no. <laughs> The issue actually wasn't with the sacrifices at all. The problem with the sacrifice was the hearts of the one who gave them. Why did Cain murder his brother? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. He murdered his brother because murder is a characteristic of the unregenerate heart. The only way to be free of murder is to be filled with the Lord of life. Robert prayed for the, the church in Syria this morning in his prayer of intercession, and rightfully so. You may not know this. Uh, was it five years ago? There were 160,000 Christians in Syria. Today, well, a week ago, there were less than 1,500. Where do you think most of those people went? The correct answer is to heaven. I mean, you think about how much of that church has just been exterminated, just disappeared. Because the unregenerate heart is a heart that is filled with hate. And it seeps out, it leaks through the edges. 
And sometimes you have a culture or worldview or framework that that acts as a preservative that may limit the damage, that may mitigate some of the sorrow, but it is intrinsic to the nature. And we see this just as you watch the news as we see murder happening more and more and more, it seems like. I know part of that's because we actually see it now thanks to the, the internet. But we see it seeping through this hatred that can't be gotten rid of. We're watching whole generations being raised with a sense of self-loathing that has been unrivaled in recent American history. This internal turmoil of a hatred for self that is staggering. It's because the nature change. A nature marked with love versus a nature marked with hate. And it's interesting, he he takes the illustration of Cain and Abel and and makes a a quick and immediate application. Look, uh, Cain and Abel were brothers. They were raised together. They worked side by side. One raised the food. The other raised the clothing. They were part of a team. And yet one got jealous enough to kill the other. And if they were family and treated each other that way, how on earth do you think the world is going to treat you? I mean, if they were family and they killed each other. Now, some of you are going, well, I know my family, fair enough, actually. (laughs) Not a surprise. But verse 13, that's exactly right. Look, don't be surprised that the world hates you. They are creatures of hate. It's why the words of life are so powerful. It's why the gospel is so attractive. It's because, look, they don't have to live in a world like we're living right now. They could live in a place like this. They could experience nights like last night. They could be in a world marked by love. But instead, they don't. They hate themselves, they hate their neighbors, they hate their God, and they hate the church. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And we, on the other hand, we know that we have passed out of death, we've passed out of that realm, we've passed out of that kingdom, we've passed out of that life into a new life. And the way that we know this and the way that we see this here at Test is because we love the brothers. I'll go ahead and just kind of make a quick application here. If you ever find yourself in a situation where you begin to see you're really, really angry with the church, I would tell you lovingly, every red flag you have in your mind should be going off. Like you ever, you've met that person. I have a friend who lives right near me, actually, who's this way. He says, I, I love God. I just hate the church and I refuse to go. And you look at a passage like this and you say, I, I'm, I love you, friend, but I have to be concerned that you may not even know the Lord at all. Because here's the thing. God loves the church. And he loves the church institutionally. He, he loves the church so much, his people, that he sent a son to die for And if you don't love the church at all, I really have to wonder. I worry for you. 
And one of those things for us, we know that we will go through seasons of despair. We know that we will go through seasons of trial. We know that we will go through seasons of difficulty. And honestly, right now, we are at the top of the wave, and it's wonderful. We know it will not always be days of joy and gladness. If you find yourself in a situation where you begin to doubt your love for the saints, oh, please, be concerned. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. It's the proof. It's uh, the way that we get to see. It's the, if it walks like a, talk, a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it, it's probably a duck. It's, it's the way that we see its nature. This is who Christians are. But those who do not love, they abide in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And it's wonderful how, again, you see John so clearly talking about the nature. It's not an issue of those who have murdered cannot go to heaven. Because we know plenty of those in the scriptures. King King David being one of them. Paul being another. (laughs) Moses being some of the great names in the faith, murdered people, but were redeemed. They have a new nature. They were forgiven, and we we look forward to seeing them in heaven. Yet here it's that that condition of the soul, that nature of a, a heart that's marked with hatred because it is the nature of that heart. And they receive death in the end. God's nature change produces a love for the saints. He transitions immediately in the passage. This part is one of those that is particularly well-structured and pleasing. God changes the nature of the saints to where they love each other. But that love needs to be a love of action and not a love of concept. It's love that's not done in theory. It's not done in the mind. It's not even done with words. It's a love that is committed to. It's acted upon. It is action-oriented. By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Look, he immediately jumps to the ace of spades illustration. Look, Jesus said that he loved us, but honestly, we know he loves us because he died. It wasn't just that he talked about it, it's that he actually did it. And if we say we love the saints, we too are to die to self, to spend our lives in the church. To spend our lives for the benefit of those around us. To spend our lives in the kingdom of God. He then intensifies going from the ace of spades to an even more personal one. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You think about when he's writing, they don't have government programs to function as safety nets. They don't have retirements to function as safety nets. They don't have a massive banking system established to function as a safety net. When you hit trouble, you were toast. And, sorry, those that are uh, ladies without sons, if you didn't have a boy, you were double toast. 
because he was your only hope for the future. And if you didn't have one, the Lord had only given you girls, which would have been a blessing to you. It wouldn't have been what you needed. And here he's saying, look, if we see these people that are in need and we're not willing to put our, our lives on the line, not willing to put action to what we say, if we just say, peace, go, God be with you, and not do anything to actually care for them, well, that's not very loving, is it? Eighteen, the summary statement. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's a perfect day to preach this because last night, last night we had a great party. I had a ton of fun. Again, I hope you had at least half as much fun as I had because I had a lot. And half of a lot is still a lot. And you would have been fine. But it was wonderful because you get to see this very thing, this very principle in action. It wasn't just that I had people say, thank you for being pastor. We had hugs and smiles, a couple of tears, some of which were mine. A gift of a trip. Hard work and food, setting up tables and chairs. It was an active process that had been weeks in the building for the party and years in the building for the affection. It was something that I will be able to walk away with and have stored in my mind for years and years and years to come because I know you guys love me. And I have that as a a visible, tangible reminder in my mind that I know that I'm loved. Just think about how, how easy was it, you think, this morning for me to pop out of bed being ready to preach? It was a fun car ride to church. Because I had that tangible kind of physical portrait in front of me. Look, they, they love me, and it's not just a love in concept. It's not just a love in theory. I got to see it. I got to feel it. I got it squeezed out of me. And it was great. You did well. Now, part of why these passages, I think, are hard to preach for folks that do these well, portions of the church that do these well, is that when you do it really well, it is sometimes hard to maybe highlight areas where we could maybe improve just a touch. And honestly, I don't think you could have proved the party last night. It was perfect. It was a 10 out of 10. Nothing better could have happened. But maybe for us to be sure that we think about, hopefully I make it easy to be loved. Hopefully. Hopefully my sermons make it easy to rejoice in 10 years and you're not going, man, how much longer till he retires? (laughs) His hair's gray enough, it looks like next week, but I don't think it is. (laughs) But for us to maybe be thoughtful to think about how we have to work hard to be sure we're expressing the love for the saints that maybe aren't quite so easy to love. Now, I'll tell you one thing that the session prays for with great regularity is nursery workers and Sunday school teachers. And it's one of those things where it's very easy for us to say that we love the children of the church. But I'm going to delicately challenge you to say, show it. 
And we prayed Friday morning. I remember Tom's prayer exactly. He said something to the, the words, something to the effect of, may it be that we are a church that is so loving that we have too many teachers that we actually have to put them on a waiting list to instruct the children in the things of God. I'm going to not pretend like nursery work is easy. I've worked nursery once as an adult. I made the children cry so badly they removed me from the list. (laughs) Not going to pretend like teaching children is easy. I did it for years professionally. I know. But it's one of those areas where, you know, let's build together as a body. Let's grow together as a body. Let's make this body one where we get to see and feel and experience the love of God, both for those that it's easy to love, which is most of you, and those that it's very difficult to love, which might be a couple of you. Uh, That we uh, express it all. Thank you for catching that as a joke. That we might understand as God's people that we are called to love not just the lovely, but sometimes those that make it a little bit more trying for us to love them. And I recognize that, honestly, if we think about it from this perspective, love is so easy on nights like last night where we're celebrating and it's wonderful and it's happy and you make me cry. It's so easy to love on those nights. But might it be that as God works in us that our love doesn't just peak at those moments? I mean, you think about Christ. It would have been so easy in his ministry for when they finally realized that he's the Messiah to be like, finally, you've got it. Let's just move on now. (laughs) And it's interesting. What does he do that he, he gets that moment and all of the gospels note that's when he sets his face to the cross. Finally, when the disciples become lovable, that's when he goes to the cross. It's not when he goes into greater ministry with them, per se. It's not when he's like, hey, let's go out and celebrate in the mountains, or let's go fishing and catch some fish and eat well. No, it's time for the cross. May it be that we follow the pattern of our Savior, that our love is not just confined to those that we adore and are easy to love, which, again, is most of you most of the time. And and again, I I recognize that, and I think John and the Holy Spirit certainly get this, that if we approach love with such a view, it will become difficult. And honestly, there will be seasons for some of us where we will grow weary of doing it. I recognize there are some people in the room, introverts, that the idea of people just in general exhausts them. They're tired from my sermon already because I've talked about people. (laughs) There's some that are extroverts in the room and don't even know what I'm talking about because the people around them and they're so excited. John understands that if we're going to do love in this fashion where it's, it's not just contained or reserved for those that love us back or it's not just reserved for easy people to love or it's not just reserved for those saints that are a delight uh, to be loving toward. But if we take our love as God's people and we pour it out upon the people of God, and if it's modeled after the crucifixion, which means my love costs me something and not you. If my love costs me and not you, well, man, that's not easy at all, is it? And that might actually get wearisome at points. It might 
be discouraging at points. It might be quite difficult. And I love immediately where he turns in the scriptures. He says, look, look, (laughs) if we're going to be creatures of love, And our love is going to be this sacrificial type of love that comes at a cost to us and it it hurts us and it's marked by forgiveness in this sort of way. It's that biblical portrait of love that the church holds forth to the saints. The only place that we can go to think then is we have to kind of go back to the promises of God. Because honestly, even our affection for each other, though it is very great, is not enough. It's not. We have to have it anchored in the promises of God. And look at what he says. By this we shall know that we are of him. That we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. This is how we can tell that we're saints. We have this love for each other. But for whenever our heart condemns us, there's going to be some of us that are going to go, you know what? But I really struggle with love. And some of us, it's going to be seasons where we're like, I'm really tired of them. Or they're driving me crazy. Or a particular season of great weariness or where the idea of people is unusually exhausting or overwhelming. There may be a season of our life or even, honestly, there are some of us that are just by nature fragile creatures when it comes to other people. And he says, by the way, when your heart condemns you, when when you're in the midst of that, God is greater than your heart. Your feelings condemning you, your inner workings, that inner monologue that is damning you, that is condemning you, that is telling you how bad they are, that's telling you how much they exhaust you, how weary they are, how hard it is to love. He's bigger than that. Can you please go back to him? Don't go back to the voice in your head. Don't go back to the condemnation. You've had that season. It didn't work out well for you. Go back to the promises of God. God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. He knows how difficult the church can be at times. He knows how difficult people can be. And he still says, go love them with a sacrificial love. This is not an an uninformed commandment. This isn't something that he's telling us to do without him fully understanding the depth of the command. He knows his people perfectly and says, by the way, go love them. It's a mark of who I am and who you will be. And you're like, well, I'm, I mean, honestly, I'm not sure if I could do that. I mean, it's easy on nights like last night when it's fun and we're at the high points and it's simple. But you look at the history of this church. I mean, yeah, the last seven and a half years have been a ton of fun, but the time before that maybe hasn't been for everybody. And he says, guess what? God is bigger than your hearts. And oh, yeah, by the way, beloved, if our heart doesn't condemn us, if we're in God, if we've gone back to his promises, we can have confidence before him. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. I love that. You know what? For those that are in God, and you know what? The seasons are going to get hard, and there will be times of trial and difficulty. That's why you have prayer. And that's why he he frames prayer in such a powerful and promissory fashion. Ask whatever you want in God's plan and God's will, and he will give. I mean, think about it. If your children were to come up to you and go, you know, 
Dad, Mom, I've been thinking about it. And I've realized that I don't obey as much as I ought to. And I really am going to try to work harder to be obedient. If you would be so kind as to help me obey more, I would really like that. Do you think there's a parent in the room that's going to go, "Mm, no. (laughs) I would prefer you to be disobedient. And there's not a parent in the room that's going to say that. There's not a a grandparent in the room, a great-grandparent in the room, uh, an aunt, an uncle. No no adult in their right mind is ever going to say, I prefer you to disobey. In fact, actually, here, let's go do something wicked together. No no, no adult in their right mind is ever going to say that. They're going to say, of course, I love that you want to obey. Here, let me help you do it. Yet, interestingly, when we think about God, we don't think of him that way. God, I know that you are love. And I know that you've given me a nature and that I'm supposed to be love. And I have situations where it's easy to love you and it's easy to love the saints. But I have some that I don't find easy. And I'd ask that you help make me loving. Do you think in his right mind he would ever? No. No, I want less love in my people. No, I want them to be less obedient. I prefer them to be wicked, honestly. Of course not. I mean, that's, that's nonsense. And I love how John frames it in such strong terms. You ask whatever you want, he's going to give you. He's going to give it to you. It will happen. You will receive. Because we keep his commandments and do what please him. Because our nature changed. Because we have been transformed. Of course he's going to give this. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. We, we will receive this. We're going to be benefit. We're going to be transformed. And then I love how he ends it with intimacy with God. And whoever keeps his commandments abides in him. And God in them. By this we know that he abides in us and by the spirit whom he has given us. We have intimacy with God. I appreciated um, Dick's comments particularly. They, They fit the vein of how the session here prays regularly for the church. To acknowledge so much of what the good things that God has done in our midst. I I was not being ridiculous or facetious or melodramatic or hyperbolic in any way when I say so many of my pastoral friends in other places are jealous of my call. I cannot count the number of times I have heard them say, well, yeah, you can do that. You've got a great church. I can't do that where I am. I mean, honestly, if I, had a, I, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that, we would have multiple buildings up front, and they would be lovely. But I also recognize that any time we excel, there are two things that tend to follow very quickly, immediately. One is the temptation toward pride. To, to revel in the success and to think, yay, look at, look at what I've done or you've done or what we've done together. Look at any one person aside from Jesus. That great temptation for pride. And then the second is uh, the devil comes swinging. Anytime the church flourishes or succeeds or excels in anything, the, de- the devil comes. 
And I'm telling you right now, I think this is a church that has excelled in love. I hear it all of the time when I visit new people in the church. Yeah, I walked in the doors and man, that was like the most loving place I've been. They welcome me in. Maybe some of them were a little strange, but man, they, they welcome me in. And I just, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. A loving body. And genuinely, that's the other thing, too, is I, I hear all the time people say they genuinely care about me. Yes, absolutely. It's true. It's, it's not a false pretense. It's a loving body. I'm telling you, I think by God's mercy, we excel in this regard. Which means I'm immediately warning you about pride, and I'm immediately warning you about the devil will come. There will be two temptations that are set before us that we celebrate ourselves instead of celebrating the Savior who has given us this love for each other. Or to celebrate ourselves and to forget to keep a careful eye that the devil will seek to undo this at all cost. To give that little niggling doubt in the back of your head toward the goodwill of a neighbor to assume wicked motives toward them, to say that you have forgiven them, but to meditate on that evil deed forever and ever. Amen. That's called not forgiving, just for the record. Because again, I think God has been very gracious to us in this way, and only through the work of Christ and the Spirit and the church here. May it be that as we continue to grow, that we continue to excel in this. May it be that when we celebrate the next time in the future, whenever that is, that this is still the appropriate passage. That here is a church who understands love and understands active love. And may it never be that we have a session that weeps because we've either grown so inflated with self or we've not been quite prepared for the devil and his schemes. And we lost. And lost the love that is part of our nature that God has given to the saints. May it never be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. I thank you for this passage, and I thank you that I get the privilege of preaching it to a church that excels this so well preaching this to a church that is so incredibly loving that I think anybody could walk through the doors, doesn't matter what they look like, they'd be received and edified and encouraged. Lord, might we not grow proud in that fact? Might we not grow lazy in that fact? May we flee temptation and may we love the saints because you have loved us first. May we cling to your promises. May they be the fuel for the engine in our soul. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.